0: Hey friends, Jason Miller here. You're listening to the South Bend City Church podcast. If you'd like to watch this teaching, just look for South Bend City Church on YouTube or find our Instagram account at Church. Whether you're local and tuning in this way because our gatherings are suspended because of COVID or you're a member of our long distance digital family, we love you and we hope you're well served by this teaching. If you'd like to financially support the work, please go to southbendcitychurch.com give we are not always heroes sometimes we are sometimes we're heroic and we spent a lot of epiphany talking not just about the life of god in jesus but the life of god in us and the scripture starts with this beautiful picture of humanity as bearers of the sacred image as bearers of the character of god as channels of the love of god as conduits of the work of god in the world but of course that's not the only thing that's true about us and it's not the only thing that's told in the story of scripture Sometimes we are brave and we do beautiful things, but we are not always heroes. And this Lent season, we wanna grow in a way of reckoning with how we are not always heroes and how we don't always live for love and how sometimes we rebel against God's kingdom rather than cooperating with it. How sometimes we we don't live up to who we are. And if we're gonna get that conversation started, I thought, what if we looked at a character in scripture whose story brings about the first mention of the word sin, which by the way, the first mention of the word sin does not occur in the story that you might think it occurs in. Uh, This is also the first story where we read about somebody taking somebody else's life. The character I'm talking about is Cain, and I'm talking about uh, the conflict that erupts between Cain and Abel. So let me take you into the text. This is Genesis chapter four. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, what's going on here? Uh, people have surmised a few different possibilities for God not looking with favor on on Cain's gift. Uh, Some have wondered if this reflects an early ancient Near Eastern preference for shepherds over farmers. And they point later into the story about how Moses and David, two of Israel's hero leaders, are shepherds, not farmers, and they wonder if that's what's going on. Others have observed that the text uh, says that Abel brought the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock, uh, which seems to say that maybe he brought a better, more costly offering. And so with these kinds of interpretations, sometimes teachers will work that out and begin to concoct like, whole formulas for like, how to get favor and how to get the blessing from God. But there's a problem with all of that interpretive work. And the problem is that like, it seems that like almost all the reputable scholars that I look at, whether ancient or modern, they say that's not what's going on. They say this text doesn't actually give us any reason to understand why God accepts Abel's offering and not Cain's. They suggested, like, this isn't a story about how to get the blessing. So if it's not a story about how to get the blessing, then what is it a story about? Well, uh, there's an an Old Testament scholar, um, actually right here at Notre Dame, named Gary Anderson. And I once heard Gary Anderson say that the entire book of Genesis is a meditation on the problem of chosenness. Not the joy of chosenness. Not how to get chosen or how to get the favor, but that the book of Genesis is a meditation on the problem of chosenness. What kind of problem? Well, like the problem that Cain has in this story. Let me read just the next uh, sentence here. After God looked with favor on Abel and his offering and not Cain, the next sentence says, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Because of course, if it seems like someone has the blessing it seems like somebody else doesn't, right? If it seems like somebody has the favor, it might feel like somebody else doesn't have the favor. And Cain, his face is downcast and he gets angry. And this story to me reminds us that we have to ask the question of ourselves, what will you do when someone else has the blessing? What will you do in those moments when it seems like somebody else has the favor and you don't? I think that's actually the, the pressing question in this text. Uh, like, like, what do you do um, with that co-worker who seems to be able to do no wrong with the boss or the clients when you can do no right? Or what do you do with that friend or that family member who works half as hard but lives twice as large because they just happen to land at the right career at the right time? Or what do you do uh, with... The person whose marriage just seems to be flourishing while you are walking through the painful steps of your own divorce. Or what do you do with uh, the high gloss, highly curated social media highlight reel of somebody else's life when you are faced with the dull and dingy moments of your everyday life and it feels like they have it going for them and you don't? What do you do when it feels like others are praised while you are forgotten and left behind? What do you do uh, as others like pop out babies left and right and you and your partner are stuck in a painful fertility journey, wondering why things aren't working the way that you had hoped that they would? What do you do when somebody else has the blessing? And I raise all this um, because it's really high stakes. Now, quick disclaimer, I'm not talking about what we do when the system is tilted in favor of some and against others on the basis of some categories that we have constructed, like race or gender or sexuality, or like, like, like those kind of systemic ways of sifting and sorting, who gets lifted up while others get kept down. I'm not talking about those big systemic issues. Those are other sermons for other times. I'm talking about the, the high stakes day-to-day encounter of everyday comparison when we look around us and it feels like somebody else has the favor or the blessing. I'm talking about, for example, like what happened to me a little while ago when I was on Instagram. So I go to Instagram and I, I, as I'm sort of scrolling through, I see the profile of somebody I really admire and respect. They do work in the world that I think is really good. And frankly, I I would like to do work like the work that they do. And I, I, I did something that I often do in books. Like often with books, I wanna look at the footnotes because if you've written something really powerful and compelling, I like to know what your sources are. I want to know where you have been feeding because I want to feed on some of that too. So I'm on Instagram looking at somebody I admire, checking out the people they follow because I wonder who's influencing them. And as I'm looking at who they follow, and by the way, this is somebody I know, I have a relationship with. As I'm looking at who they follow, I discover there's somebody very important they don't follow and it's me. And then right after I discover that they don't follow me on Instagram, I see that they follow somebody who's not nearly as impressive or important as me. I'm being a little facetious, but this is a little bit like what it felt in the moment. I'm not proud of it, but I wanna share it with you. So there's this person I admire and respect, and I see they don't like, seem to be noticing me on Instagram, but they're noticing somebody else who I think does kinda crappy work in the world. And I start just ruminating. Not on the person I admire and the fact that they don't follow me, but on this other person that I look down on and on the fact that the person I admire seems to have some favor for them. And I start thinking to myself, ruminating all the things that are not great about this person that famous person follows. And I start committing a little bit of character assassination right there in my mind, which this person who's being followed by the impressive person had nothing to do with. Don't act like this is strange or foreign to you. This is what happens in us when we feel like somebody else has the blessing. It's, it's not just uh, an uncomfortable feeling, um, although the, like the feelings are pretty uncomfortable. It actually leads us toward patterns and behaviors. Like look at what happens next in the book of Genesis. This is chapter four, verses six and seven. We read, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And by the way, this is the first mention of sin in scripture. Curiously, despite what you might've heard, the story about Adam and Eve and the fruit that they eat in the garden, the word sin is never mentioned in that story, but it does come up here for the first time in scripture in a story about a character who doesn't know what to do when somebody else has the blessing. And God says, Sin is crouching at your door. This complicated situation is fraught with potential that if you don't know what you're gonna do with the feeling that somebody else has the blessing, some sinister things might come about. Begs the question for us, right? Like when, uh, if you've felt like an underdog, has that led to resentment? I know it's, it's funny on the underdog thing, right? Like who would judge an underdog for some negative feelings. But of course, they don't just stay negative feelings, they lead us toward harmful actions. When has feeling like you're the underdog led to resentment? When has um, feeling like somebody else had the blessing led you to some kind of harm? Maybe it's really subtle. You know, you're in conversation with friends and you just let some uncharitable things slip out that you know will affect the way that they see the person that you envy. When has am feeling like somebody else had the blessing distorted relationship or family life? When has feeling like somebody else has the blessing closed your heart and made you smaller? When has feeling like somebody else had the blessing led to division in the workplace, unnecessary conflict that like, you've brought about? How about this one? When in our church has the feeling that somebody else had the blessing led to unnecessary division conflict or harm these seeds of discontent and envy they get planted and they grow now one other observation in this story is that um, that when we allow this sort of discontent to have a home within us it doesn't just affect our relationships with one another it also has a way of seeping into our perception about the nature of god or ultimate reality or the way the universe actually works. So uh, let me continue in the story. This is chapter four, verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Oh, no, wait, sorry, I missed the thought. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. All of all of that from that little seed of discontent about, about Abel seemingly having the acceptance of God and Cain not. So murder enters the story. And then the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you, and you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Uh, You notice a couple of turns that happen there, and they're pretty subtle. So uh, Cain allows this seed of discontent to grow in him, this grudge to get nursed in him. Then he kills his brother and violence enters the human story for the first time in the way that this story is told. The word sin comes up for the first time in the way that this story is told. And then God has this conversation with Cain. And he says, first of all, that you are driven from the land. As if to say there's a consequence to this thing that's just intrinsic to what you have done. Notice God doesn't say, I'm driving you from the land. He just says, you're going to be driven from the land. But then Cain hears it and says, you're the one driving me from the land. So Cain seems to keep, keep like ruminating on this perspective that God is against him. Even though God hasn't actually said, I'm driving you out. He just says, this is what's going to happen now. This is the intrinsic consequence of, of the seed that you have allowed to grow within you and what you have done. But then how does the story end? Cain, at the end of the story, ends with a mark of protection from God over his life. And I don't know why God looked with favor upon Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. There's a lot of mystery in this story. But if this is a story about God being against Cain and in favor of Abel, I don't think Cain ends the story with a mark of divine protection over his life. I think the story ends differently from that. But of course, like when we feel like somebody else has the blessing, it doesn't just divide us against one another. It also leads us into a distorted understanding or interpretation or relationship with ultimate reality, the way the universe is, who God really is. We start to surmise all of these, I think, like really untrue assumptions about whether there is an abundant generosity in God or whether there is a scarcity in God about whether God only has so much blessing to give, so much kindness to show, or whether in God these things like love and blessing and abundance are totally unlimited and infinite. And By the way, Jesus tells stories that make me think that that he knows that we struggle with this, that we find ourselves in situations that we look to our left or our right and we, we feel like somebody else has the blessing And then from there we begin to have distorted perceptions about God and God's posture toward us. And so Jesus tells stories, for example. Like he tells a story about a vineyard owner who who brings in workers at different hours of the day. And at the end of the day, those who showed up at the first part of the day are paid the same as those who showed up later in the day. Even though those who showed up at the first part of the day are paid what they are promised. And some of those workers get upset about what, what feels like this sort of unequal favor from the vineyard owner. And then in response to that, uh, the, the, the vineyard owner, who's sort of the God character in the story, asks these people, are you envious because I am generous? Jesus tells a story about a father who is generous to two sons. One of the sons uh, really uh, abuses that generosity and takes everything the father would give him and runs away and lives a wild and offensive lifestyle in a very dishonorable way to the father, and then comes back after he sort of wears himself out in that kind of life. And the father welcomes that younger brother back into the household. But in this story, the older brother watches all of this and sees the father's kindness toward his younger brother, and he develops a grudge. And toward the end of the story, the father is throwing a party for the younger brother, and the older brother is standing outside of the party, a picture of him, arms crossed with a scowl on his face. And the father comes out and says, what's going on? Why aren't you in the party? And the brother lets loose and he rants about how offended he is at the father's generosity toward the younger brother. And then he says, what about me? I've been here the whole time. And the father says, don't you know that all I have is yours? Like all of this is yours too. Don't, don't you know there's enough for both of you? Jesus tells these stories that inhabit that take us into the experience of feeling like somebody else has the blessing. I think he tells them so that he can subvert the interpretations that we have when it seems like somebody else has the blessing. But he doesn't just tell stories about the generosity of God that are are meant to disrupt these sort of natural notions of envy and, and, and favor. He lives a story that brings him into the intersection of curse and blessing when he's crucified. For Jesus to be crucified is to inhabit the place of curse. In fact, uh, in his people's stories and scriptures in the ancient Jewish texts, we read that a man who hangs like that on a tree or a cross is cursed of God. Well, curse is the word for the person who has the opposite of the blessing of God. So he hangs there in the place of the cursed one, in the place of those who don't have the favor of God and yet, the life of Jesus is a story about the life of God in the world. As if to say that there on the cross, that God is inhabiting the, the, the deepest, most painful experience of, of the lack of favor of God. And in that experience, God is giving God's self away to the world. That in God's great love for the world, God gives God's self in Christ on the cross to the world as if to say like, well, I don't know why it seems in your workplace or your family, or on social media or in your day-to-day life, I don't know why we, why we keep bumping into these feelings that somebody else has everything going for them and everything seems to be working against us. But if we are going to ask bigger, deeper, more profound questions about what the universe is like or what God is like or what God's posture is toward us, I think we do well to meditate on the best evidence that we have, which at least from where I sit, is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that in that death, God is giving God's self to the world. And if God would give God's self to the world, then surely God is for us. And we could take a beat and pause for a moment when it seems like somebody else has the blessing and not run after those dark thoughts that we nurse about our neighbors or about God, but ask some other questions about what we could do in these moments. God said to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So like, what would you do if you feel like somebody else had the blessing, like what maneuver could you turn toward? Well, I have one big idea that I wanna propose to you, one big option when it seems like somebody else has the blessing, and it's simply this, what if you blessed the blessing? What if you actually like got behind the blessing and chose to celebrate it. Even if you don't feel like it at first, Because of course, one thing that we know about ourselves is that our actions can lead our feelings as much as our feelings can lead our actions. So what if you just chose to bless the blessing? You know that social media stuff I was talking about earlier? Well, we actually have a lot of data right now that shows that when we lurk on social media, just meditating on other people's curated highlight reels, we actually get more depressed in our mental state. But there's an exception to that effect on us, which is that if you go into social media and you don't just lurk and you don't just drool other other people's highlight reels, but if you actively engage, so that like say when your friends have that kid, if you you know, comment and you say, I'm happy for you, I'm cheering for you. If your friend brags about their promotion and you like the post as a way of saying, I'm so happy for you, that behavior actually inverts the effect of being on social media. And you come away from your time on your phone, not feeling worse, but feeling better about yourself. Like, like it turns out that blessing the blessing can actually lead our feelings and change our perspective a little bit. What about, uh, do you keep a gratitude journal? Which is, that's a great way, by the way, to keep in touch with all the favor and the blessings that you've experienced. Uh, this is a practice of mine most nights, just to write down a few things that I'm grateful for from the day. Maybe you do that. If you don't keep a gratitude journal, I'd say keep a gratitude journal. It's a really beneficial practice. But how about this? For the next week or month, like try this for a bit as a way of blessing the blessing. What if you had a practice that every night in your gratitude journal, one thing that you write down that you're thankful for is a blessing in somebody else's life? What if that was a way of blessing the blessing? And so at the end of the day, you, you make a note of how, how thankful you are for that conversation that you had with your partner where you felt really seen or understood. Or you make a note about how thankful that you are that you're able to pay the bills this month. Or you make a note for how thankful you are for that like really delicious meal that you had. Or for the way the evening light cut across the sky and the fact that you took a moment to notice it. But then, what if you also wrote in there like, oh man, my friend who was work- looking for a job for a long time finally found one and I'm thankful for that for them. Or man, I found out today that a friend of mine is really fulfilled in their marriage or romantic relationship and I'm so glad that they are feeling fulfilled. Uh, you, could, you could go on and on with this, right? But what if you chose to bless the blessing? and let your actions lead your feelings a little bit the next time it feels like somebody else has the blessing. And one other idea for us, which is that we would proactively meditate on the picture of God that we get, not from our social media reels, not from scanning our heads left and right in the endless calculus of who's getting ahead and who's getting behind, but instead, what if for a picture of God or ultimate reality, we meditated consistently during this Lenten season I'm the God who gives God's self away in Christ on the cross. Uh, This is one of the reasons we have our Eucharistic practice uh, over at StudiBicker 112 on Thursday nights and Sunday mornings. You can come over. It's not um, set service times or mass gatherings, but from now till the end of Lent, you can come over on Thursday night and Sunday morning and spend a few minutes, um, not just reflecting on the ways that we are not always heroes, although that's part of the reflection, but also coming to the table and having another human being look you in the eye remind you of the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you and tasting that meal and returning to this practice of deducing the character of God from Christ on the cross where God gives God's self to us. In the 10 Commandments, uh, the last commandment teaches us to not covet, to not look left and right, and envy the favor that others seem to be experiencing in the lives that they're enjoying. That's the 10th commandment uh, of all the 10, right? But we have the other nine, things like you know, uh, don't murder and don't steal and don't lie. And this is sort of a core picture of a good and moral life. And at least a couple of ancient teachers have looked at these 10 commandments, these are ancient Jewish teachers, and they've asked themselves if there's a relationship between the commandments. And some have argued that the 10th commandment, do not covet, is actually the key to unlocking the other nine. And they said that if you start with the 10th commandment, if you refuse to make a home for envy in your life, if you stop that game of left and right comparisons of who around you is getting ahead of you, if you give up on that and find a way to root out of your life these seeds of discontent, they say that the other nine commandments will flow naturally from that posture in your life that the decision to not make a home for envy within us is also the decision to set ourselves on a path of goodness and virtue, ultimately the good life that I think we are longing for. So I don't know where it is that you look around and you feel like somebody else has the blessing or the favor. And I don't mean to diminish the pain of that, especially if you feel like you're having a hard time making ends meet, if you're having a hard time having your needs met, if you're having a hard time getting ahead... But I wanna remind us that the stakes are high and these grudges that we nurse are not innocent within us and they might lead us us toward real harm. And yet like Cain, perhaps the question comes to us, don't you wanna do what is right? Perhaps instead of um, envying the blessing, we could bless the blessing and then meditate on truer and better pictures of the character of God and perhaps find ourselves living a life of joy and fulfillment regardless of who seems to be getting ahead. So may you know the character of God. May you know that there is no limit on the kindness or the grace of God. May you not give too much credence to the day-to-day movements of those around us who seem to be getting ahead while you seem to be getting behind. Uh, May you bless the blessing uh, and may we do what is right. Grace and peace, friends.